You're listening to Jackpot, brought to you by Jack.org Queens. Today's conversation will be with Dr. McNevin, psychiatrist and founding director of Students Mental Health at Queens. In this podcast, Dr. McNevin gives us an insights into the faculty's journey with mental health and the next steps needed to facilitate mental health accessibility on campus. My name is Igor. I'm a biotech student at Queens. And I'm Braj, and I'm a first year studying health sciences. We hope you guys enjoy and gain some insight. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, today, Igor and I um, are basically meeting with Dr. Stephen McNevin. He is a psychiatrist and a founding director of the Division of Student Mental Health at Queen's University, which is a part of the Student Wellness Services, which I'm sure most people are aware of. Um, Today, we basically want to talk about men's mental health, but we're going to delve into other topics as well. Um, A few few days ago, it was that Let's Talk, and so I'm sure everyone knows what's going on. Basically, I just want to start off with men's mental health. I mean, it's, when we think about it, when we think about mental health and depression, I feel like men or men's voices are less heard. I mean, I was looking at the statistics a few days ago. I mean, in Canada, three out of four suicides are men. Um, the incidence of depression and bipolar may actually be higher in men. And it may simply be that men are simply less likely to get or seek mental health, like help from, um, you know, uh, or mental care. And so I just want to, I just want to like, I just want your thoughts on that. Like, like as a psychiatrist, what are your opinions on men's mental health? Well, I, th- I think it's, it's an, it's an evolving story because I think of problem projects like the, the Jack project and things like that, uh, that it's a lot, <clears throat> it's allowing more people to, uh, to become more aware of, of mental health issues and to sort of face some of the stigma. And, and I think men have, uh, uh, have faced maybe more, st- uh, had more stigmatizing views about mental health, that they're, you know, they get messages about they have to be strong, silent, you know, and, and uh, endure. And, and it's that kind of that stereotype that, that, that is reinforced over and over again. And, and it makes the, the showing of any kind of weakness, uh, um, very risky um and so i think it's it's been a a, um both a question of external kind of stigma and internalized stigma that has meant that men don't don't seek out the care that they need to so um i think it's 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 changing though and and i uh i think more and more people are coming forward And, and certainly within my own sort of practice experience i'm sort of seeing men and women at about the right ratio for how they're represented on campus. Now with about 60% of the, the campuses sort of would probably self-identify as female. Um, that, uh, and, uh, but that leaves the, the other 40% for others and, and for, for men in that group. And, and that's about the population that they're there. So I think it's, at least on the campus level, I, I think it's, it's, it's become more uh, normal, more acceptable to be male and to sort of say, you know, uh, I've got a problem. Uh, and so I think people are coming forward. Um, uh, you know, traditionally, it's been said that, that there are twice as many women as men sort of presenting with, with uh, depression. Um, and, and there may be some specific kind of biological, sociocultural reasons why, why that is, is the case. 
Um, we don't really know all that part. We, we know that the gender has, has a risk factor thing. But I think even within that, you sometimes left thinking, well, is it really uh, like a two to one ratio or is it the, the, the help seeking behaviors are, are, are more considered more acceptable um, for women than men? But as I said, evolving ta target for sure. Um, I guess I'm curious about when, 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 when you think about it in your own own life, or reflect on your own life experiences. What what it's been like to to um, to sit, um, in that gender divide. Uh, Personally, for me, I mean, I think there is this sort of stigma, especially like around people who I talk to. There's sort of this hesitancy to like express emotions, and there's always talk like. And, you know, why are you being so emotional and this and that? So I think it's still there. Um, I don't know if it's intrinsic to, like, what it means to be a man. Like, you know, like, our how we, psych like, our psychological development, maybe. So as to, like, or also society. Um, I feel like if men sort of express themselves or are emotional, then um, we're sort of, like, put down in some way or sort of ostracized. I don't know. People sort of don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. So I think, like in a society, like as men or as people, we usually want to have. We want to be. We want to aim to somewhere where we have strength, the way we're we're gaining, aggregating success. And a lot of times, that success is associated with us clinging to like those stereotypes of just being strong and and not being bothered about any problems or issues uh, pertaining to mental health. And I don't think necessarily, I think that's just slowly changing the, uh, within uh, sort of uh, our culture. But uh, Dr. McNevin, I looked over your sheet and you have been involved in Queens, right, since uh, the 70s. And within like within Queens, um, how do you think the, the culture and potentially even like sort of the department response to mental health has changed? And maybe more specifically men's mental health. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I've, I've, I've been here a long time because I did my undergraduate degree and my medical degree at Queens and went away for a while and then came back and been back on campus since 1988, which is a really long time ago when I think about it. Um, and, you know, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. In, in some ways, there are lots of changes. In other ways, not much has changed. Um, you know the the I mean the the campus has grown enormously. Um, you know I, I when I was um, first coming back to Queens in the late 1980s, the goal of the university was to cap the number of students on campus at 10,000 because they figured that's all they had the capacity for in terms of the footprint of the school and to keep the character and quality of the school. And then for a whole bunch of factors. Um, the university has grown and now it's like 30,000 students. And, um, and I, I think, uh, so it's a much bigger university now with, with you know, being a medium, well, I guess now a medium sized or medium to large size school, it's, it, it takes on a different character. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think when my mother went to Queens, there were 3,000 students at Queens and everybody knew everybody. You know, <laughs> it was an intimate campus and, and a very, uh, very much a different world back then. And even at 10,000, you, you could still get to know people. 
Um, and now it, it, it's just a swarm of people everywhere. You know, the campus always looks packed with people swarming all over the place and, and trying to find your own little identity and niche in the place becomes much more challenging. And I see you nodding your head there. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it's difficult. And now, of course, we've got the pandemic and like it's, it's, just, it's just crazy situation because it just there's nothing uh, there, there's there's nothing you feel normal about the whole place or how things are unfolding and it's just taking on new directions. But I think, you know, when, what, what has changed is the demographics uh, of, of who comes to university. The university has continued to broaden who gets to get to come to university uh, in terms of socioeconomic, family, immigration, uh, gender, um, and, and indigeneity, all those things are different and the school is a much more diverse and much more reflective of the broader Canadian um, population. And and with that, that comes some additional challenges that, that the programming has to adjust as well, that it, it's not, it can't just serve as one narrow demographic um, uh, because it, it doesn't capture the whole campus anymore. And so I think th there's been this evolution of resources, but what I, what I find really interesting because I've been recently looking at some of the the old reports. You know, like most of us are familiar with the Principals Commission on Student Mental Health, which was back in now 2012. It's almost 10 years ago now since its release. Um, but before that, there were other reports, and I've gone back as far as 1963. I was reading a report from then, and the language is a little stilted and 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 maybe a little. Uh, out of date, but the issues they were talking about are exactly the same issues we're talking about now. Um, and uh, the solutions they're talking about are exactly the same solutions we're talking about now. And in all those years since, there's been tremendous effort and work done in those fields, but but there's just still so much more to do. Um, and uh, you know, people often talk these days about this, this concept of the iceberg, and we're just seeing a little bit of what's on top but there's an enormous amount below the surface that we're still not getting to. And, and so that's why things like this podcast are a great way of starting to bring some of that to the surface, of allowing uh, you know, a safe place where people can dialogue and talk about these things and, and start to recognize within themselves what, what, what's going on. You know, based on what you said, I feel like when we try to like expand or sort of bolster our efforts to helping people I, I i still see there's a there's a lot of hesitant hesitancy amongst people especially my peers you know i've seen people struggle you know i've lived on res i'm still in first year so i've seen people struggle with you know their mental health problems and they're still really hesitant despite there being extensive amount of support from their peers or from those around them to seek help but they still don't do it Doctor, why do you think people are still hesitant to seek out help, even though it's such a, it's it's not stigmatized anymore to like, go see a psychiatrist or, you know, seek help. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, and 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 you know, the irony is that that I only get to see the people who who do reach out, right? So so in terms of my my clinical experience, I'm I'm seeing the people who who are sort of overcoming whatever those concerns are and are getting getting in the door the people that are not getting through the door though they're the ones that that, that um, I worry the most about 
because they're not even started on that journey of 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 turning things around and and suffering in silence and and it's it's those people that we kind of really kind of worry about who, who end up uh, committing suicide, the, the disappearing into substance abuse, dropping out of school, all that sort of stuff. Um, and and so I think it's probably very individualized what what why people don't seek help. Some of it may be just their upbringing, uh, the kind of the the view their family has about mental health and mental illness. It may be. Uh, a fear of, of uh, you know, the deep state keeping track of everybody's movements and that somehow are they coming back to to ruin their career chances or something like that, you know? And, and uh, you know, I was thinking particularly, you know, Queens has a long tradition of sending people from graduation to into the public service. Um, and, um, and, you know, then you worry about, well, yeah, security checks and things like that. So, so then it becomes like, I don't want anybody to know that I've ever had any kind of mental health problem. So even though I'm suffering and, and maybe today feel really bad, I'm not gonna go and seek care. So that may be factors in it, but but there are probably many other things that, that kind of come into play. One mm -hmm. of the things is I think it's, it's there's a wealth of resources on campus. And in fact, it's a little overwhelming sometimes because there's so many different things, so many different options, so many different choices that, that maybe that's also part of it is there's a paralysis of action because it's you know, what do you choose? How do you choose? And how do you kind of get informed enough to know how to choose? But and 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 it still requires effort. Like it's it's it it you still have to make that call. You still have to. Um, line up early to get an appointment. You still have to, you know, um, push against a, a system which is itself overloaded and overwhelmed. You know, so that those may be other factors as well. Yeah, uh, Dr. McNevin, do you think the current uh, way we're approaching the solution, as in uh, bringing more awareness and re really pushing education about uh, mental health? Is the appropriate way to grapple with the issue, or is there other more, uh, more, more obscure uh, uh, th things and inv factors involved, like like socioeconomic or uh, political, that are currently really sort of inhibiting more uh, uh, a, 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 a better. Um, yeah. Outcome. Yeah, well, I think so. I think I think it has to be a multi-prong approach, and and uh, there there are um, you know I'm not sure whether you guys have heard about the housing first uh, movement, which is which is really recognizing that that for many people, many suffering from uh, or dealing with mental illness, um, uh, you know, before anything else can be done, they got to be have safe, secure housing. And once that's in place, everything else starts to fall into place a lot easier. Um, and that that's that's that kind of important kind of thinking and that, that's going on now and, and real realignment of resources to kind of recognize that that's probably a better way of spending some limited uh, money. So, um, uh, and I, I think we're seeing the same on, on campus. There's a sort of a shift towards a, a more of a, population orientation to, to the interventions that people are taking. Um, but that's the interesting part, because if you look back at that report from 1963, I was talking about, there was still 
you know, whole sections of the report was saying is professors should get together at the beginning of, beginning of term and coordinate their efforts so that they don't uh, make everybody write assignments all in the same week. You know, and yeah. Kind of like, yeah, okay, that was 1963. Uh, we talked about it in, in the principal's uh, commission in 2012. And we're going to still be talking about it probably for quite a while because there are a number of things we can do uh, at a population level, which will have great impact at the individual level in, in, in perhaps making it, uh, you know, preventing or minimizing or reducing the stress people are under and, and the subsequent development of, of uh, mental illnesses. That isn't to say though, that some mental illnesses are just gonna happen. Um, you, know, with the, you know, when we think about things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, things like that, the major psychiatric disorders, um, this is the age, uh, young adult population, when these disorders present and they're still gonna present. And, and in some senses, um, you know, before, like in the old days, if somebody got a major mental illness, they only had one option, which is to leave school. Um, now we're sort of saying, no, school is an important part of your life and development and you should stay. And we will help you find the resources you need to, in order to prosper at university, despite those challenges. Um, so we need to have that capacity for the individual care and resources, but you know, this general sense that a lot of human suffering and a lot of distress out there could be addressed by changes to the environment and, and resources around that. So food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, adequate exercise. I think that was one of the great advances of, of the university was, was the ARC and sort of transforming the, the resources available for fitness on campus. Um, you guys are not around when, when it was basically a dungeon that you could go to and, and try and work out and hope you didn't get any mold dripping off the ceiling, you know? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a whole different environment now and, and, and uh, something that really, uh, I think the university should, is rightfully proud of. You know, I, I wanna go back to a bit about, you know, you, see, you said we need to tackle certain inherent problems, you know, socioeconomic or political or whatever. I was I was reading into you flourish, which was honestly an amazing study, which you and your colleagues did. Um, I was looking at the 2019 statistics out of like out of like the first year student body. You guys got I got like 60 percent of first yeah, years responded. And, you, yeah. and I was looking at the numbers, nearly 30 percent of first years self-reported to having some mental health condition. Obviously, you guys took um, other information as well, like socioeconomic you know, like their parents' income and like all these other factors to determine like what caused it. So what was like the the main proponent in the, that 30%? Like was it, was, was it from deprivation? Was it from like familial, like, you know, separation? I'm, I just wanna, I'm a bit curious, so. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that the, we ever really came to too much conclusion about the origins of that, but uh, the, that that high percentage of proportion is is pretty much standard across universities and and really pretty much standard across um, the young adult demographic, whether they're in school or not. Um, it's it is um, what what's what's what I find intriguing is that that there's there's been a lot of talk about the snowflake generation, right? And sort of saying, oh well, you know, this generation is is just is just uh, they've had helicopter parents, they've been mollycoddled all along. That's a phrase from the 1963 report, I believe. Um, and uh, but uh, 
really that's 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 not the case um I, and and um what i i think people are really seeing is that that this generation of students is more willing to come forward and, and seek care um and, and i said though it's still just the tip of the iceberg in terms of all that's going on but but uh yeah i, I think we haven't really kind of um, cracked that, that, not solve that issue, but where does all this stress come from? We've got lots of ideas, right? That, you know, like I was talking before about the housing and, and food insecurity and all those things in the broader population. But within the university population, those same issues have. There are, there are people who are, are poorly housed, live in difficult, uh, very difficult living situations. There are people who don't know where their next meal is gonna come from, and yet they still gotta go to class. And uh, we know that, that people are, are sometimes carrying an enormous financial burden that is just haunting them, knowing that when they, they finish university, they can't buy a house because they're already making mortgage, the equivalent of their mortgage payments on uh, their student debt. And uh, those sorts of things weigh heavily on people. And then, and then there are people who are coming to university as the first in their, their generation, first in their family ever to go to university and carrying all the hopes and expectations of their families on how to succeed and 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 in a way limiting their choices you know so traditionally people at university have been saying you know well you know you should do your passion this is what these years are all about well for a lot of people that's that's not possible they have to do whatever it takes to get a really good job because they go and owe a lot of money and they have a lot of people to support so uh, all those issues are, are come to play um, really just variations on what's been been there um, really all along. Uh, I was thinking, uh, my, my father used to, at his, like, I guess it was his, like, his 50th university um, uh, reunion. Um, uh, he went to U of T, mind you, but anyway, but he, uh, you know, he got together with a bunch of these guys, and one guy showed up who they hadn't seen, like, in 53 years. And he finally decided to come to one of the re alumni reunions because he dropped out in first year and no one knew what it would happen. He simply disappeared halfway through the term and he was the mystery guy. And, and he'd finally built up the courage to come and talk to his, his peers at this, this reunion just to, to let them know that he'd had a death in the family. He got depressed and he dropped out of school. And but, you know, so it's, it's there. Human misery is there no matter what generation or what time it is it's, it's always in the background uh, throughout your years of practice uh, then have you noticed any changes of the issues that uh, students are bringing to you or or patients mm -hmm. yeah. yeah well I, th I think one of the things that, that, that that's more on the surface um, and, and more people are more willing to come forward to are, are issues around gender identity and and transitioning and uh, uh, you know, tr trying to come to terms with 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 those uh, issues and and the challenges involved in, in in making transitions and stuff. So that's that's been something that that that's that that has has been more um, on the surface now, and it's always been there in the, the background. Uh, they were talking about it and related uh, that 1963 report really grabbed me because they were talking about stuff like that then, using awful terms, but. Uh, but it was it was there as a concern and, and a regular presentation to their clinics. So it's like, wow, okay. So, but, but I think it's it it is something that that I've seen more of, and and I think the other the other um, 
I guess the other shift I, I see more is, is how people have already embraced, even before they come through our doors, the, the broader issues of getting regular exercise, of, of trying to you know, balance their lives, of, of uh, getting adequate sleep. People already kind of are getting those messages and, and are trying to enact them. Um, and, and that's, that's really impressive to me. You know, um, and and uh, I think the other thing that 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 that's I've seen has changed over the years has been how students are living. Um, uh, it used to be, you know, back in the '70s and '80s, most student housing were multiple um, bedrooms in, in a unit, and. And you know, it was very common to be living in a house of six or seven people. And more and more students are, are seeking out solitary housing situations. And, and in some senses that may reflect greater housing choices than they used to be, greater affluence among the, the students, um, perhaps for some at least. And, but I think the other thing that strikes me is always the, the danger of becoming too isolated. And, and that sense of community seems to be uh, um, fading. I, Queens was was known for its sense of community and uh, a, a deep um, commitment to that sort of uh, Queens family kind of idea. Um, it wasn't always as like every any family wasn't perfect by any stretch, but but I think it's it's much harder for people to make that kind of identification, and people are just more um spread out and and not in connection and and it's and it's been unfortunately you know the way you get together is you drink a lot um queens is a binge drinking school and the numbers are there for that and that's that's really a i think a sad development yeah just to grapple because we tend to be very ignorant of our history right but to have the historic perspective of i mean are you just saying that the, the solutions that we're seeking at that time are quite uh, akin to the ones we're, ha we're having now, or the demographic, I mean, it has profound effects on the community. And I, I never even thought about that. That's why I was that's such a stronger expression to, um, to that. But um, do you think that the, the way Queens, the campus is evolving, is it uh, a little bit and, and compounded with the with the with the with COVID, is it potentially are we are we walking sort of in, a, in the wrong path, or or do you think that uh, our community remains strong but in different in different ways? Yeah, I think it it it's in a, a process of transition, and and one hopes that that it will grow stronger and different. But I think university, Queens in, in particular, but universities across Ontario, have really faced a, a sort of existential crisis. Um, the funding of universities in Ontario is, is, is quite, from government levels, is quite low uh, compared to other provinces. And I th that's put all kinds of pressures on universities, including the pressure to grow larger and including the pressure to, to, to bring in international students who pay triple the tuition fees. Um, and, and some schools as, as, as um, I think as it was at Laurentian that just had to close, um, had, had relied greatly on that external kind of funding and that kind of creative ways of trying to bring money in to keep the institution afloat. And I think that's created all kinds of tensions and, and, and um, 
has uh, really created a real crunch for the university and a challenge for them to have to reinvent themselves. And Queens is on a path of reinventing itself now, becoming much more research intensive, much more of a global school. And uh, and it, it's, it's uh, well, I guess time will tell whether it's a successful enterprise or not, but it had to do something. It, it just couldn't uh, balance the books any other way. Mm -hmm. Going back a little bit in your practice, uh, is there sort of any imbalance of how uh, patients are treated, as in men and women, and or sorry, uh, different genders, and um, and also the the treatment that they undergo, like being that being medication or just uh, the different sort of treatments for, uh, for, for their symptoms? Is there sort of like a, you think there's a, there's a chasm between uh, the way different genders are, are treated or? I, I think there's been some, some interesting uh, research and discussion about, about that like across the board, not just the Queens, that, that, that in terms of like general physical health and things like that, or even getting offered surgery or not for heart disease and things like that, uh, gender seems to matter a, a great deal. Um, and uh, I mean, and gender of the healthcare provider also has a role to play in terms of of, of, of different outcomes and things. So it's, it's a really fascinating area that people are looking at more closely these days. Um, I think the effort of everyone is, is to, to try and meet people where they are at and, and, and offer them the, the care that, that will, that makes the most sense for them. Um, but beyond that, it's hard to really know. I don't think um, within the, you know, the, the kind of you flourish kind of research and things that we're doing right now, um, I'm not sure how much it would get at, at those particular issues, but it's, 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 um, it, it's, an, those are important questions and we're certainly learning a lot. Um, the Canadian Medical Association uh, journal has kind of reoriented its whole approach um, in, 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 as a medical journal and what papers they, they've published, what kind of editorials they do in the last couple of years. And uh, I find that, that um, you know, they've been really pointing out the, the, the critical role that, 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 um, that these issues have to play in, in what should be sort of like a neutral, everybody gets the, the right care. Um, well, it turns out probably that's not happening. And, and, and it's something that, that I think as a profession, as physicians uh, and, and those in the, the larger, larger healthcare community really have to come to grips with is that they you know, have an implicit bias that just pervades a lot of the decisions and choices that are made. You know, um, doctor, I recently took a pharmacology course and in it, I learned a lot about medications and antidepressants and this and that. I was honestly really intrigued because the professor was talking a lot extensively about this chemical imbalance theory that, you know, yeah. a lot of psychiatric illnesses are caused by hormonal imbalances or some chemicals too high in the brain or whatnot. Yeah. You know, as a, as a psychiatrist, I've, I, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that, you know, we can solve depression or fix someone just by giving him some pills? Or do you think that we need more of a broader, a more spiritual, a more meditative or some other approach? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, 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 that we've, we've 
I think known for a long time is that when people talk about chemical imbalances, it, it's more of a metaphor. It's a way of trying to explain or make sense of what's going on. Um, but if you think about it, so there's a chemical imbalance. So what's causing the chemical imbalance? Why is this this serotonin level not the same as the other person's serotonin level and things like that? I mean, it, it's 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 more of a sign than 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 the cause. Um, and 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 people are moving away from that 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 chemical imbalance idea of talking about it simply because um, it it's been oversold as if it's the answer to everything. Um, and and what most most people are sort of saying is that for mild to moderate depression uh, at a clinical level of, of mild to moderate depression, um, you know it's, it, it probably can manage better without medication. It's it's more severe depressions that you start thinking about medication as as, as a as a, a, a consistent component of, of 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 the treatment. But but even there, um, in situations people can do very well on on. Uh, some of the uh, evidence-based psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, that's what most people talk about all the time. And, and, and variations on that are, are, are out there, which, which can prove to be very helpful and have the advantage of, of, of having some component of relapse prevention uh, without the need to take medication for the rest mm -hmm. of your life kind of thing. So, so those are really important approaches. The difficulty is, is finding the therapist you know, getting getting someone who can do those evidence-based treatments, and and again, with uh, in a way, COVID nineteen has opened up the world of online resources in a way that probably would not have happened so quickly. Um, and so we have lots of online therapists, some online you know, CBT modules that can be self-guided, all kinds of resources like that, which which can fill that gap that that that, that still remains that we just don't have a lot of therapists and particularly don't have a lot of therapists that are funded by OHEP or so uh, unless you've got the money or the private insurance coverage to it you, you can't really access that care there's lots of really great therapists out there but accessing the care is more challenging because it's not covered and and that is probably going to be changing in the next 10 years I think um, and, and it's already changing with some of these online resources like empower me and um, uh, which has been really uh, a great thing or the uh, Wellness Together Canada um, site as well. So anyway, um, but yeah, and the spiritual aspect I think is really important. And, and a lot of people have been turning towards more mindfulness and meditation practices. And, and, and I think there's a strong link with, with uh, spirituality uh, kind of across the board as, as part of that. And, 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 for many people with depression, they, they they struggle with the whole question of the meaning or purpose of life. And that, that certainly moves quickly into the spiritual realm as well and trying to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, a, oh, go sorry. ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask about the uh, role of, of medication uh, and someone's like the intent of giving medication to somebody. Is there any, do you know of any research? Uh, is, is there usually... Um, is the aim usually to bring the person back to a state of uh, non-depression or is it usually ends up being someone something that accompanies that individual for the rest of, of their life? Yeah, well, I guess there's a, a sense that uh, a good portion of people will have just one episode of depression in their lives. Um, um, and, and so um, I think the I can't give you really solid numbers, but, but 
I think the thinking is, is that about 40% of people will just have one episode of depression. They'll get over it. They'll move on with their life. And, and for all intents and purposes, there's not much depressive symptoms left over. But that then leaves the other half of people or so who may go on to have a subsequent episode of, of depression. And if you have a second episode of depression, then you're probably going to have a third one. And you're moving into that category of people who have recurrent depressive episodes throughout their lives and need to, to actively uh, address or engage that to minimize its impact. And then there's some people who have this kind of low grade, low grade, not in the sense of trivializing it, but just sort of a kind of grumbling kind of depression that never quite goes away entirely. And I think one of the things that we're, we're kind of recognizing is, is that, that depression is, is not a unitary entity and people are talking more and more about personalized medicine and rec recognizing individual aspects that, that shape a person's depression and also means shapes uh, the, the kind of treatments or options that could be helpful for them. Uh, so we see lots of people who, um, you know, respond really well to cognitive behavioral therapy, but then there's a large bunch of people who don't. Uh, we see a lot of people who, who, who can get away from depression almost entirely by getting into a rigorous physical activity routine or through uh, mindfulness practices and again sort of move on so it's all of those those different aspects but they all sort of come with the label depressed but their responses are so different to those those kind of ideas or interventions and um, you know there used to be this old concept that's coming back again about neurotic and endogenous depression um, and endogenous is that more heavy the genetically determined it's going to happen no matter what and then there's the more neurotic kind of depressions, which, which could respond to, to dealing with life stressors and just minimizing those and people rebound quickly. And um, for many years, I worked at the personality disorder service at Providence Care Hospital. And, and pretty much everybody we saw come in the door was on one, two, three, four, five medications, one after the other layered on to try and deal with their, these, these individuals with in extreme emotional distress and suffering that that uh, is hard to even put into words um, and and really struggling in their lives um, and uh, with quite a high suicide rate and uh, and most having a profound history of trauma or early abuse or neglect and um, really medications don't do very much for them <laughs> but people are desperate to offer them something because their suffering is so great um, and so the task often at the personal disorder service was, was to, to have people move through a, a set of uh, therapeutic group programs and enterprises and individual therapy. And most of them got by without any medication at all because uh, the medication just was, was not reaching at the level at which the problems were arising. Oh, I see. Um, and Tagging in with this, do you think um, that the current model, like this sort of uh, Canadian American model of university, of this really big transition uh, between going from high school uh, to university and allowing all these liberty and, and freedoms to that uh, to students, do you think that's a sort of a a a healthy transition, considering the way the sort of society and the world uh, is, is moving into a more sort of a, a globalized uh, scale? 
I, I come I come with this question sort of the perspective that I'm from I'm from Brazil and in Brazil we have sort of it's very common for students to just sort of live at home and that not being an issue and commuting to university uh, but here find that there's a sort of a, a pressure to go out and uh, gain these new these new experiences and really uh, test yourself and. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think yeah, you, you make a really good point. Is is that that people arrive at university with very different experiences and backgrounds, and and um, and for some people, it's it's a huge transition. Um, it, it just goes against pretty much everything they've grown up with, and and uh, that can generate enormous stress. And um, and with stress, you know, thing, you know, things break down, people break down, uh, problems arise, it, it, and and it, it it's so hard in that situation to even put your finger on what's going on because because it's such a totally uh, immersive or different experience, and and I can just imagine what it's like to arrive in a, a whole different kind of culture, way of doing things, set of expectations, and and it, it seems like everybody knows the secret except you. <laughs> like, okay, everyone else is laughing at the joke, and I'm not getting it. Was there a joke? And you know, you know, just, just, just the the, the simplest things can can be so uh, so confusing because it it's it's so culture bound and 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 uh, and uh, so it it is a huge transition. And I think the 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 key to survive all that is is um, uh, is humbleness of just being able to just you know, come to that sort of space where you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to get everything right. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to um, uh, get all the secret jokes. You don't have to, and, and that's all right. And that's okay. And and that, and having a community that's accepting of that. And and, and I think that's one of the the, the joys I, I find at Queens is, is Maybe it's at other universities. I've been at a lot of other universities, but maybe at Queens, it, it's 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 particularly so, and and still survives. Is is that 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 kind of welcomeness that uh, I think uh, many people find here? Um, it's not perfect by any stretch, but I think that there's there's a, a chance really for for people to to be supported and encouraged to to um, explore this this new space or new way of living. <clears throat> You know, doctor, I have to ask you, so I'm in my first year of undergrad studying health sciences and I, I was, I'm still unsure as to like what I want to do. Maybe I want to pursue medicine. Maybe I want to go into research. I still don't know. Yeah. You know, as a psychiatrist, thinking back, thinking back to your own life, why did you go into psychiatry? Why did you go into medicine? Like, was there like, you know, even today, like, do you truly enjoy what you do? Do you like? Does it bring you like value, like fulfillment? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a bit curious into that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I enjoy what I do. Um, uh, I, I absolutely hate the paperwork, and it mm -hmm. seems like you know, it, it, it involves an enormous amount of time and energy and frustration and all that sort of stuff that 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 takes the saps the joy out of the the other work um and i could go on for hours about how much I work. 
Uh, however, that's <laughs> I don't want to discourage you from going, <laughs> but but it, it's 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 ridiculous. Ever since we ever since we went paperless, there's been more work than ever to do paperwork. It's kind of like just on the world. Anyway, um, but uh, and you'll find that in so many different uh, disciplines these days. But but I think um, you know I I I had a kind of relatively unique advantage of. Of, of having uh, some uh, uncles. Uh, one uncle was a psychiatrist. The other uncle was a family doctor who was also a GP anesthetist. So he, he practiced anesthesia in a smaller hospital. And both of them are also uh, did some work as coroners. Um, and uh, they're really neat people. And uh, I had an opportunity to see a little bit of them at work. And that intrigued me about medicine. And uh, then when I came to, to Queens, um, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of got swept up in the excitement of, of, of the new life sciences program they had at Queens and thought, well, oh, this looks really cool. And it gave me a broad scope of things I could do within the, that program. And uh, then um, I got involved with Telephone Aid Line Kingston and uh, was a volunteer on, on the, the telephone crisis and referral service at its very beginnings. Um, and ironically, a number of us from those early years ended up working at student health for a while together. It's quite funny after like, you know, 10, 15 years apart, all of a sudden, oh yeah, you know, we all had little secret code names and stuff. Uh, anyway, um, what I, so it was that kind of experience of, of talking on the phone with people um, in, in great distress and, and the training that was involved and, and, and uh, just finding this, this is something that, that, that I could do and could do reasonably well. Um, and and I really, I think back to that volunteer experience even now that um, in COVID-19, I find that um, uh, all those years on, on, the, on the crisis line meant that I was pretty comfortable talking uh, through Zoom or Teams or Reacts or OTN or just talking on the telephone, which is what I mainly do now. Is uh, it, it just uh, feels pretty natural to me. And I think it all came from those, those early experiences and, and seeing that those, those would, would make a difference. Um, uh, so, so I think it's it a range of experiences that that drew me to and kept me in in medicine and in psychiatry in particular. And really, I, I you know, as uh, my old psychotherapy supervisor used to tell me that uh, uh, I wanted to be a family doctor, and and it's true, I probably did want to be a family doctor because there's a part of me that still misses those other parts of medicine. So, um, you know, I. At one point, what wanted to deliver babies, and psychiatrists don't deliver babies. Um, there's actually one psychiatrist in town who, who does sort of do that stuff, but he qualified first as an obstetrician gynecologist and then became a psychiatrist. So that's, that's how he kind of keeps those two hats going. But but uh, for most of us, it means moving away from that more interventional side of, of medicine and in, into 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 all the talk therapy and, and things like that that we do. But I was thinking, you know, the, the psychiatry itself is evolving and, and there are going to be and, uh, more of the, if you will, what thinks of more mainstream medical activities because 
of, of uh, what's called interventional psychiatry. And, and, and um, one of the other things I've been part of is part of that uh, interventional psychiatry unit at, at Providence Care Hospital. And uh, the unit provides, you know, classic ECT, so shock therapy, and, which is um, got a really bad name, but is and, and probably our most effective treatment for severe depression. Um, but also transcranial magnetic stimulation, doing the groundwork for people who get uh, deep brain stimulation and uh, or um, vagal nerve stimulation. Um, and uh, now as ketamine and ketamine uh, infusions. Um, and uh, all of a sudden we, we've got a whole new suite of options which are far less intrusive um, and uh, are proving to be highly effective for some of the most distressed people on the planet. You know? um, and so that, that I think is gonna be um, an evolving aspect of medicine. We finally got a, a few things that are, are kind of working that uh, can be really helpful for people who nothing else works for. Uh, coming from that, so do, you, so do you think that a more appropriate way to uh, to view depression will be devising into uh, sort of a, a depression that, that arises from heritable factors and others that sort of come from more uh, socioeconomic, uh, as you said, the uh, neurotic uh, depression? Instead of seeing it all sort of under an, umbre an umbrella and a, a, a within a uh, substrate, yeah, I think so, and I, I think that, that we're just at the very beginning of that. Um, um, it's um, the University Department of Psychiatry is 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 looking at um, at uh, they have this project called CanBind, where they're they're doing like brain scans and blood tests and detailed mental health histories and detailed histories of trauma, everything else like that, trying to develop essentially an algorithm where you can start to um, individualize the treatment for people um, based on the, all these different factors taken into account and start to, to map uh, out that. And so it becomes more than just, uh, well, you're depressed, so you take this pill. It becomes you're depressed and these are the different factors that are part of your depression that's in unique to you and collectively they point us in these kinds of directions for interventions that could be helpful for you. Uh, I think we're just really at the beginning of understanding some of that stuff and, and refining those ideas, but it's already led to you know one of the spin-off projects of, of that program right now is 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 um, they're using um, uh, well they're using capsules made up of out of out of uh, to change the flora of the human gut um, so right uh, that uh, those changes in the gut are associated with all kinds of different kinds of depression and other kinds of issues. And so if you can change the gut flora back into something that, that's more in a healthy direction, then you can have profound effects on people's mood. And you kind of go like, wow, that's so, so out there, but it, it, it's, it's proving to be true. So yeah, so it could all come down to diet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. That's really interesting because it's sort of hard to grapple as a layperson with what really is the origin of depression or, or mental health, right? And then when you mention something like to do concerning the gut or even shock therapy, we, we I, I feel like we always have this natural 
instinct to just push push away from this sort of somatic uh, symptoms, at least the way I feel, because we, we want to sort of feel that we have some sort of control over what right or of what we're struggling with. Yeah, and and I, I think it, it it it's frightening. I think for for people. And going back to how we started talking earlier on in the conversation is, you know, that that kind of fear um, can lead to some some avoidance behaviors. Like, I, I, it's scary to acknowledge this is happening outside of my control, so I'm just gonna try and not think about it. I'm just gonna push it to the back of my mind and just carry on, grind away day to day while suffering, rather than acknowledge that, oh my God, this is bigger than me. I can't do this on my own. You know. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that is an issue for many people in, in terms of contending with, with mental illness is that, that the, and the irony is that that, 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 that same dynamic comes into play when, when people take on sort of like excessive and inappropriate guilt, which is part of depression, where, um, you know, the, say in early childhood, your parents have this huge fight and they break up and, and um, it's a frightening, terrible experience for a small child to have their whole world crumble all around them and, and they have a state of free fall. So, so what do they do? They try and give themselves a sense of control by saying, oh, I made that happen. I'm responsible for my parents' breakup. And then of course comes all the guilt and frustration about that, but it's built all on, on, on the fear of, uh, uh, of, that comes from that feeling of being out of control. So you kind of adapt this strategy of blaming yourself with something that isn't yours to blame for, uh, rather than feel out of control, which is a, a, an awful feeling itself. So, you know, Doctor, to to to, to end this all out, to all off, I want to ask, what do you, what do you, for the future? How do you see? you know psychiatry you know mental illness mental health how do you see it playing out i mean it's been two years of a global pandemic people have been isolated like i feel like as we as we progress people are suffering more and more for the future like what do you see is is this a continual trend are we you know yeah uh well my sense is in, in, uh, that uh, we're going to have to learn to live with COVID-19. We're going to have to live with the pandemic have become endemic, which means it's always there. And, and it means adjustment in how we live and adjustment in how much risk we're willing to accept for ourselves or for others. And um, you know, one of the things that's impressed me so far is 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 the amazing resilience people are showing, uh, the the strength of character, the the commitment to the service to others. Uh, you know, like when they they organize one of these mass vaccination clinics, they get two or three hundred volunteers who will stand out in the freezing cold, uh, you know, helping feed people through the line and stuff like that, and and just just amazes me beyond all belief how how much people are pulling together and um and i think there is some fatigue uh, a lot of fatigue among people around those those issues now but um 
I think that we are facing a, a, a huge challenge now in coming to terms with um, the reality that, that we're not gonna go back to the way things were. Um, and we probably have a very sort of um, imagined vision of the past, you know, like everything looks better when you look at the past than the present. It's always much better than the, the golden era and stuff. It wasn't really a golden era in the first place, but, but we kind of, just the nature of the human condition is we tend to want to remember the good stuff and forget the bad stuff, which is probably very good survival value sort of thing. But uh, we'll have some nostalgia for the good old days, the, the golden days, you know, like. Uh, but I think that, that, that um, you know, the, we need to uh, uh, collectively and individually come to terms with this is our new reality going forward and, and to make the most of that and, and, and to learn from the lessons of, of, of the past that it, it, it's, uh, you know, when we think about, I grew up in the Cold War, right? So, so we had exercises where we had to, you know, duck under our desk because they're going to drop a nuclear bomb on us and stuff like that. And that just makes it easier to organize the bodies, but it doesn't really protect you to be under your desk when a nuclear bomb is <laughs> But anyway, thought we could do something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so that became, after a while, you just kind of got used to it. And, and, and uh, I was thinking, you know, like... Uh, if you think of the, the little kids who are in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, they, they've, uh, you know, they've never, they've never had it any other way. And, and same for, you know, as a first year university student, you've never been on campus when people have been on campus. You know, you've never been here when it's been surging with people and, and, and classrooms buzzing with, with activity because it just hasn't been part of the, the, the world that you've experienced. Um, and it'd be nice to get back to some of that stuff, but really probably always going to be having to deal with the, the, the shadow of, of this, this pandemic. Um, and it will become eventually, you know, 10, 15 years from now, it'll be like the fact that, you know, here, here comes flu season again. We got to get some more shots and everybody to make sure that the people don't die of coronavirus slash the flu slash Ebola or something like that, because Ebola is not going away again. <laughs> um, and so, so I think that's going to be be the way uh, of the future. And, and and I guess it's more like let's get creative and get the most out of life, no matter what the situation is. Mm -hmm. Wow, amazing! That's a very good. Honestly, doctor, um, I don't want to take too much of your time. I understand you may be busy, so mm -hmm. thank you for your time. Thank you for such a productive conversation. This is really good. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys.